Welcome to Geeks Who Lead, the global learning community for senior data and engineering leaders operating at scale. My name's Peter Bell. I'm founder and CTO at Geeks Who Lead, and previously taught at Columbia Business School and ran engineering at General Assembly. The future of engineering leadership is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Every week we share interviews from senior data and engineering leaders, sharing their hard-won wisdom, and occasionally we mix it up with interviews with domain experts who can help us all to more effectively deliver business values from the engineering or data orgs that we oversee. Hi there, my name is Peter Bale, and today I'm speaking with Mike Buford, the CTO at Greenhouse. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. My pleasure. Good to see you, Peter. It's great to see you again, too. And I, I love how you've dove into this, this, I think, incredibly topical area of setting an AI strategy as a CTO, which is really just like, let, let's take this time to kind of do a high-level survey. We're not going to get into the details of the models. We're not even going to get into the details of using it in your team, but just at a high level, what should you be thinking about and what should you be learning? So maybe the first question I'd have for you is, many of us running software teams are not necessarily experts in AI. So how do you even start to get up to speed about the potential capabilities as a non-expert? Well, first, don't crack open your linear algebra book. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I think, you know, when, when CTOs, um, especially those of us who are trained in sort of product development, product engineering, computer science, and, you know, maybe learned a lot of this stuff, you know, 20, 20 years ago and learned a lot of the foundational skills, um, we weren't super fluent in uh, machine learning methods. And obviously, it's become a more important part of how we develop software. And so, you know, a few years ago, I actually went on one of these little journeys where I, you know, went and tried to learn all the classical machine learning stuff and brushed up on all of my mathematics and all of those things. And here we are today, a number of years later, and you're dealing with higher and higher levels of abstraction. You're not having to, you know, sit there and actually do a sort of matrix multiplication yourself, um, you know, in order to figure these things out. A lot of times there's just a model, pass it some data. You, you know, have it train on something, you start asking it questions. Um, or even easier, nowadays you have these large language models, um, which everyone's, of course, reading about, uh, you know, both in pop culture and in, uh, in technical literature, um, where you can just kind of start using them. They're foundation models, they're generalizable, um, and you need to learn uh, a bit about their behavior. Um, so, uh, you know, how do you get it to do the things that you want it to do? Um, and you need to get your hands on it. And so if I were uh, sort of starting from scratch today, and it always feels like I'm starting from scratch when learning one of these new technologies, um, I'm actually getting my hands dirty. I'm playing with it. So uh, this is one of the easiest things to play with. Um, if you go to, uh, you know, uh, ChatGPT and you pay for a ChatGPT Plus account, you can get your hands on the best AI model in existence, um, pretty much hands down. Uh, you can start using GPT-4 and getting a feel for some of its capabilities. And so uh, start prompting it and seeing um, how it is kind of a method actor. You know, if you ask it to behave in a certain way, um, it will uh, try to shape its behavior and its responses in uh, in the way that you are suggesting. Um, and so uh, getting a feel for how it does that with respect to supporting you as a developer um, in writing tasks, you can even ask it to uh, behave like a Unix terminal and, uh, you know, or an FTP server, uh, and it will start implementing some of these protocols. And so um, it's a brilliant method actor. And, you know, they talk about sort of prompt engineering, and I won't dive into, you know, is that a proper engineering discipline or not, um, you know, and, and there's plenty of debate there. Um, but how you structure prompts, what you put into it is a big part of what you get out of it. 
Um, so I would say, you know, just get started doing that. Go to the uh, OpenAI um, playground that comes with the account and go uh, log in. You can pick one of these underlying models and start playing with some of the parameters and, and seeing how it works. What was your personal journey starting to work specifically with ChatGPT4? What were some of the first like non-trivial things you tried to do? And what were some of the surprises, good and bad, you had as you were trying to onboard with its capabilities? Well, I think like most people, when ChatGPT rolled out, um, it rolled out with the you know, GPT 3.5 um, you know, model underneath it, which was still completely mind blowing. Um, you know, all of a sudden, I saw this thing that could write bits of code that seemed you know genuinely useful, and uh, you know, I had the the sort of uh, pangs of dread and existential you know, <laughs> stress that um, I think a lot of us did as we started using using this technology and started interacting with it. And I started feeling a lot better as I ran into a bunch of its limitations. You know, you would ask it to reason about something. It would do a terrible job. It would make no sense. You would say, what's nine plus two? And, uh, you know, if it said, you know, the answer was 11, even if it got it right, and it might not have gotten, you know, even simple math questions right. You could be like, oh, no, two is actually five. Or, you know, <laughs> no, the answer is actually seven. And, you know, it's immediately convinced that it's wrong, um, you know. Uh, so there, there were a bunch of limitations I kind of bumped into early on. Um, and so I did not blow it off. I didn't think it was an insignificant technology. I thought it was the beginning of something that was going to take a number of years to continue to, to develop and get better and better um, and uh, and was impressed with its capabilities. Even before that, I was aware of you know, GPT-3 and uh, you know, BERT and a bunch of these other large language models that allowed you to do um, interesting things. But when GPT-4 came out, just like a lot of others, um, I, I really you know, kind of got the, the sort of fear of God out of it where I you know, started playing with it and I was like, oh my gosh, this thing is smarter than me at a bunch of stuff. <laughs> um, and I think that really um, increased my level of, of interest. And um, I think it's, a, it's, it's an interesting moment because GPT-4 is not really available for everything it could be used for today. Right. It's it's you know, there's very limited access to the APIs themselves. Um, you have to, um, you know, uh, know certain tricks in order to figure out how to how to get an API key. Um, if you're uh, using the model, even by a paid service like ChatGPT plus, um, there's some limits around you know, 25 messages within a three hour period. So, again, it's kind of limited in certain ways. It's not wired up yet to, uh, you know, Copilot X, which is, I think, the next version of Copilot that's going to be coming out. Um, so what we're seeing are the indicators of what's to come just with GPT-4, and it's going to be pretty world changing. And so, um, you know, I, I really, uh, I think, started diving deep when I realized that, you know, this is going to be something that changes how businesses operate um, and society. Uh, and, you know, um, in, in the context of this conversation, uh, you know, really trying to figure out how do we take what's here today, but maybe not rolled out pervasively, um, and what's likely to come in the near future, just drawing the line forward a little bit further, um, and what implications does that have for our markets, uh, the the businesses that we're running, um, the teams, uh, you know, and and how they're structured and how they operate. Um, there's deep implications, um, you know, for for all of these things, and you know, they make the New York Times uh, these days. And so, um, I think it's important for CTOs uh, to wrap their heads around it and try to figure out what is the plan for my business and and you know how do I shape it. I'd love to dig into that planning step by step. But the first thing I do want to do is there are still some people who are like, well, sure. But firstly, there are valid legal concerns. Secondly, isn't it just autocomplete? It doesn't understand what it's doing. It hallucinates. There are a number of objections. How do you think about that? Do you think that we're still at a point where we should be running experiments to determine whether this is going to be a thing? 
or more running experiments to determine how this is going to be a thing? I think it's more how this is going to be a thing. I think every one of those things is going to be uh, you know, surmountable as an issue in one way or another. Um, and so uh, why, don't, why don't we dive into a couple of them? So, you know, one of them is around uh, licensing. Um, so let's take the example of Copilot. So Copilot was trained, um, you know, on, on uh, a bunch of different code. And some of that code, it turns out, uh, was GPL licensed. And so if it's fit out a bunch of GPL licensed code and you integrate that into your product um, and you deployed it in certain ways, uh, you could wind up in legal hot water. That is true. But that's because that was, you know, that just happened to be the training set they used. Uh, there's a uh, another provider um, of similar types of software called Codium. Um, hopefully I'm pronouncing that the right way. There's several vowels in a row and I'm not sure <laughs> if, if that's right. Um, but, you know, Codium uh, uh, prides themselves on not having trained against uh, any licenses that are not sort of truly open and free use. And so when it makes auto suggestions, um, there's, it's less likely that there's going to be uh, those types of licensing concerns. Another huge one is um, most of the models that you could deploy in your own infrastructure today are uh, restricted for research use. And so um, there's lots of people playing with derivatives of Llama, um, you know, which was the, the model um, that, that Facebook shared out with the world. And so there's all types of uh, camelids um, out there, uh, you know, alpaca and vicuña and, and all of these different things. Um, and they are not, uh, you know, not models that you're supposed to be using um, for commercial purposes. You're supposed to be using them for research purposes. They're great to use to understand uh, large language models, understand, you know, what, what does it mean to have different uh, you know, size parameters? counts and, you know, context window sizes and, you know, if I fiddle with temperature and this and that, you know, what, what are the, the different, um, you know, different outcomes that I get when I'm using and interacting with these models. Um, but there are also some that you could use uh, in, in-house that um, are uh, with an open license. So Dolly V2, um, which was one that was uh, released relatively recently. Now, the, the trick is that none of these are quite as good as GPT-4. <laughs> and um, when, uh, you know, when GPT-4 becomes more generally available, um, I think there are going to be, uh, you know, sort of um, multiple paths already are, uh, you know, you could use GPT-4 uh, via, via Azure, um, and it will have, uh, you know, certain um, terms that will make sure, hey, we're not going to use the, the data that you're providing for, um, you know, uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback, right. we're not going to reintegrate this stuff, um, it's ephemeral, it's passing through and, you know, asking questions, and, and we're, you know, returning, um, you know, returning some text. Um, so I, I think that uh, th that will be surmountable. Now, I think you also mentioned hallucinations. I don't know exactly how all of that will be solved, but I will tell you, uh, you know, if, if anyone has the assertion that they themselves have not hallucinated answers to questions, I would challenge that. Have you ever been wrong? <laughs> have you ever said something that turned out not to be true and you were totally convinced it was true? Like that happens to all of us probably at least every few months. And so even human beings um, end up hallucinating. So what are some ways that, you know, you mitigate hallucinations? There's a recent paper that, that came out um, that, there was talk that, that was talking about how there are a couple of ways. Um, you know, you could try to generate an answer several times over. Does it hallucinate the same thing? It's unlikely to hallucinate the same thing. Um, and so, you know, if you see uh, convergence across, you know, five or six or seven different answers um, that are saying the same thing, uh, it's likely that there's a there there that doesn't necessarily certify uh, that it is definitely there. Um, a second technique is, you know, with certain types of facts, maybe you want to look it up somewhere else. 
and you know where, where there's a, you know, a, a more definitive um, knowledge source, or maybe you want to delegate it out to a more competent service. So for instance, if it's trying to do math, maybe just ask Wolfram Alpha instead of trying to get a large language model to do really advanced mathematics, because it's going to be, it's going to be worse at it. Um, a third thing is, you know, you can have another LLM um, acting as a quality controller. Um, so, you know, its uh, job is to method act and make sure that things are true. If it might be hooked up to, may already have the knowledge, it may be hooked up to an agent. Um, you know, that's, that's also another, uh, another path you could use. I won't be totally exhaustive, but, you know, there are ways of managing hallucinations. And so I think for each of these things, whether it's, oh, well, the you know, context window gets slower, uh, you know, uh, quadratically, you know, with, with the size of the window, it's like, okay, well, that's, that, you know, might be a perpetual concern, or it may be that some of the new advances with, you know, RNNs end up, uh, you know, um, squashing that as, as you know, a relevant concern. I think there will be technological changes that will um, make it easier to, uh, you know, to, to do these things and, and that we're not running into sort of hard physical limitations the way you might in the physical world. Makes perfect sense. So then it seems like there are three broad areas of applicability to this, uh, especially if you're a CTO come CIO, if there isn't a separate role for that. One is your company, how it can use this internally to improve efficiency across the business. Another is your products. What should they do? How should they change? How should it impact the market? And then a third would be your team. How can this support them in building better software in less time? Yeah. So maybe to take those one at a time, when you think about with, with a kind of CIO hat on, if you have that responsibility, what are some of the, the sweet spots or opportunities where you think this could add value to, to many companies outside of engineering? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think there's multiple levels of transformation. And so why don't we start with some of the, the early steps that I think just about every you know, every CTO or, or CEO, CIO should be taking right now. Um, you should help educate your peers on the executive team. Um, about what the current state of the technology is. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't downplay it, even though, yes, it is just a text generator. It also, um, you know, could be a world-changing text generator. Um, so not to hype it up too much, um, that, you know, not to end up on any end of the spectrum, but instead, you know, uh, attract yourself to the middle way and figure out how to represent all the different arguments to help everyone else on the executive team understand the strategic implications of this. Another one is help figure out how to negotiate the right types of generative AI policies with your legal team. Your legal team is mostly going to be scared to death about these things. And at the same time, a good legal team uh, wants to be an enabler of the business. So you need to help navigate that with them. You know, they are not the technical experts. You're not a legal expert. And so you need to work together to figure out what is the appropriate set of policies that is going to allow my organization to benefit from some of the capabilities of this technology without, um, you know, creating licensing or lawsuit issues or, you know, any other problems down the road. So um, develop a generative AI policy, um, figure out a framework for how you evaluate which tech uh, you can introduce um, and, and, you know, get that collaboration going as, as soon as possible. The next thing is um, educate your team. So let's say that everyone is allowed to use something like ChatGPT Plus and they know things like, you know, you can turn off, um, you know, it's memory of, of what you're saying, which is a new capability that kind of rolled out like an incognito mode, um, which you could use now. Uh, don't pass in business secrets. Don't give it, you know, personally identifiable information, you know, things that might get reintegrated into the model. So you've taught a bunch of people, hey, these are the limitations around this tool. So let's say you get people using it. Um, you need to teach the organization a little bit. And this is something that I, you know, intend to do uh, in, in, the, in the relatively near term, um, teach the organization how to leverage it. 
So, you know, there's these LinkedIn posts here, are the 10 best prompts for content marketing or, you know, five prompts that will turn you into an SDR superstar, whatever it is. It's not really about the specific prompts. It's about the fundamental concept that you can get it to behave and respond in certain ways um, by uh, setting the right context for it. Um, so that's something that I think the, the CTO can play a role in educating the entire company um, around uh, how to leverage these tools to drive efficiency. The next thing is it actually does make certain teams more efficient. And so people need to start giving some thought to how do I integrate these technologies into my workflows? And so I think one of the big things they need to do is figure out, well, what are we actually doing today? And what are the seams between, um, you know, all of the different steps in our process for whatever it is we're doing? We're all making sausages, right? You're either making software sausages or you're making customer support ticket sausages. Uh, this is probably an absolutely terrible analogy, but like, you know, we're, we're uh, taking some, you know, some list of stuff that we got to do. We do something and then you know, it's done. And so there's some process for just about every job um, you could have in a company, try to map out what is that. And then where are the opportunities for me to integrate some of these technologies to drive efficiency? And if everybody felt 20 or 30 percent you know, more productive, that could only be good for companies. And especially in times like these where uh, companies are cutting costs, they're you know, sensitive to how efficiently they can produce value for uh, for customers in the venture back startup world. Some of them are setting a huge amount of money on fire and it's not super sustainable and they need to figure out sustainable paths. Um, you can play an outsized role in helping to um, support a more efficient strategy for scaling up revenue for um, those organizations. And so I think that's probably the way. That sounds great. So then when we narrow the focus and bring it specifically, let's assume now that this is a CTO of a company that has some kind of software-based product, let's simplify and assume it's some kind of SaaS offering. If you if you had that, uh, Greenhouse would probably be an example, but without necessarily uh, limiting it to Greenhouse, how do you start to think about your products through a chat GPT disruption lens to figure out what you might want to be doing with their capabilities? Sure. Um, so why don't we start with easy demoware and we'll work our way out from, from that center. Um, so easy demoware. Uh, there's already um, people using ChatGPT probably to generate some content that's being used in your SaaS product. They're just switching between windows, right? So um, there's opportunities for you to uh, bake some of those things into your workflows. Um, so let's take this as an example. Not saying that this is something that Greenhouse is going to do tomorrow or anything, but just as an example, you know, we've got to generate a bunch of job descriptions and we know um, that's a lot of effort. It takes time. You have to tune it up over time. Maybe I would leverage ChatGPT in order to help me do that. Um, it may be a really great demoware and maybe even valuable to, um, to your product uh, just to make that workflow in line as part of um, what you're doing by leveraging some of the APIs that are available today. Um, then you can take it one level better just by providing better context to that window. And so if you provide some instructions, you know, you are the world's, I mean, this is probably a terrible instruction, but or a prompt, but you know, you're the world's greatest job ad writer. And you know, you're telling, <laughs> you're, you're pumping up GBT force uh, confidence. Um, and, uh, you know, and this is the shape of a great job ad. And this is, you know, what makes it work. And these are the things that you're going to look out for and not use this biased language and this and that. And you've provided that all um, as sort of a default in the in the context window. When people are then prompting with additional prompts, um, ChatGPT or or GPT four, uh, you know, um, model will will respond with uh, a higher quality response uh, than if they had prompted it directly without all that context set. So just by setting context, you end up with a better um, product experience for people. 
then you can go deeper, right? You can you can start extending it with uh, you know fine tuning your model, um, adding you know sort of prompt completion pairs that uh, you know that that might make it better at certain types of tasks. You can um, you know. Uh, use a vector database with a bunch of additional embeddings and, and feed those through. Um, you can you can do different things in order to uh, improve the the quality of um, the the response you're getting from these existing APIs. Another set of things that these models are are pretty good at are things like uh, you know translation, text classification, really like a huge range of different types of of you know, sort of text um, you know based operations, um, and so. You can start uh, using it, um, you know, it's as a as a classifier for certain types of things. Um, you can uh, auto suggest certain hints in certain places that might have been hard to figure out before. Um, so if you wanted to ask the question of, let's say, which uh, you know, use a greenhousey example, is this job similar to this job? You know, you might be able to answer that question, um, you know, with uh, with a large language, and so uh, that that might be a good way of integrating. I'll pause there so we don't go uh, into the endless depths of how you might use it in your product, uh, nor get too greenhouse focused. Mm -hmm. I, I will ask one thing. Were there any resources that were particularly useful for you in determining those broad capabilities? I think the biggest thing was getting a feel for it. Um, so I, I just want to come back to this because I think... When you start interacting with one of these things, you may have um, a perception about what it can and can't do. Um, and the more time you spend with it, the better your sense of what it can and can't do is going to be. And I do think that you can reason pretty intuitively about how this type of thing might fit in. Um, so, uh, you know, try to try to flex it a little bit. We talked about, um, you know, different places I ran into issues with GPT, uh, you know, GPT 3.5. I ran issues with GPT-4 as well. Uh, it's just that, you know, they were a little bit harder to crack into. And so try to explore the edges, challenge it in certain ways, um, you know, understand a little bit of the physics of how it works. Like there's a context window and stuff, you know, rolls out of the context window and it's sort of like an LRU cache. All of a sudden it's forgotten in the beginning of the conversation. It's totally gone. Um, so, you know, uh, getting getting a feel for um, how does this thing work and how might I be able to leverage it in my product um, is is going to be a, a key thing. And you have to collaborate with the product team. I, I just want to emphasize that because we're CTOs. Like we don't you know necessarily all have product rolling up into us. Um, we don't make totally independent decisions about what goes into our products. And so bring them along for the ride. You know, spend some time um, you know talking to them about it. Um, make sure that they're sitting down and doing things. Uh, you know, to to sort of flex its muscles so they can integrate into their own thinking. Um, show them some cool stuff that you figured out how to do uh, with it um, and talk about use cases. And I think um, you know, collaboratively with the product team um, and collaboratively with these large language models, um, you'll be able to figure out together uh, you know, what's, what's, uh, what's useful and then validate it with customers, just like anything else that, that you might want to do. Is this actually useful or is this just a gimmick? <laughs> so then if we move on from product, the last big area I would say would be within your team. Clearly, Copilot's already helping to generate code in certain instances. How would you start to think about how you would in integrate this, especially into a, a team at scale, right? It's not like you've not just got three people sitting around a table. If you've got a couple of hundred engineers, how do you start to think about a strategy for stepping towards leveraging this without taking on too much risk? Yeah, um, I mean, I can I can tell you a combination of things I, I would suggest and things that I've, I've already done. Um, so one of the first things I did was hit everyone over the head. Uh, I just happen to have one here, so I'm just going to add it for comic relief. A mallet, no, it <laughs> just happens to be here. It's not not actually a prop for for that comment. Um, but uh, I was I was at the end of it. Ask me, ask me anything, um, and you know, researching all this stuff. 
And I figured, you know what? There's 15 minutes left. I'm just going to show the Sparks of AGI video. Uh, you know, there's there's a there's a YouTube channel called AI Explained where this guy goes into you know whatever the uh, you know latest um, you know research paper is, and he's actually read the 120 pages, and so he summarizes it in like a 15 minutes 15 minute video. Very convenient for those of us too lazy to read 120 page paper every three hours when <laughs> whenever they come out. Um, and so he did you know a 15 minute review of some of the findings from this paper, Sparks of AGI, uh, talking about GPT for sort of exceptional capabilities, um, and I think that created this huge surge in interest in the topic. So one of the first things you can do is get people interested. So um, I leveraged somebody else's great content instead of uh, generating it myself, instead of just saying, LLMs are really cool, everyone should spend time on it. Um, just showed them this cool video and then interest peaked. And I showed it to product managers as well. And they also got you know, sort of really interested. Um, the next thing is, you know, how do you enable them to start using the tooling? So I started having some staff engineers and um, you know, folks on our application tooling team, which you know, builds tools that, that support a bunch of the developers, um, start starting to use different, uh, you know, AI tools. So um, Copilot, of course, you know, start playing with Copilot, see if it would really be useful. And, you know, Copilot is like really awesome autocomplete. I think I think that is probably, you know, not a, a huge exaggeration. Um, Copilot X, we'll see what it's like. But if it's powered by GPT-4, that would be more impressive. Um, but I had a staff engineer, you know, try to design a service. So let's pick, you know, pick some type of service. Let's say it's a service that handles, uh, you know, requests to email stuff and then email stuff to people. And you need adapters to different types of email providers. Like pick some type of arbitrary problem um, and pair with it to generate the code um, and start getting a feeling. And so um, you know, generate test cases, um, generate individual functions, generate uh, you know, uh, models, um, have it adapt um, you know, pre-existing code. Um, all of those things uh, help you understand where it's useful and um, gives you some intuition about where you might need to check quality. So for instance, GPT-4 is really bad at uh, knowing um, you know, whether something is a real method. <laughs> it does hallucinate methods. Yeah. Um, another thing it's not so great at is remembering what it wrote before. So if you said, "Oh, can you, uh, you know, can, can you, you know, modify this one behavior?" It'll spit out entirely different code a lot of times the next time. <laughs> um, and then you know you're you're copying and pasting the the entire block all over again. Um, but it's really good at things like generating test cases. Um, it's good at uh, you know uh, understanding what the sort of idiomatic patterns are of a, of a given programming language. It's better at some languages than others. It's great at pairing and helping unblock you, you know, around configuration issues or or things like that. So you know, get a feel for what it's good at and what it's not. And then even without being able to um, you know, throw your entire code base in there and make sure that it understands um, you know, your code uh, you know, sort of natively, um, you can still start using it as a pair programmer. Say, I'm trying to figure out this problem. I'm trying to get unstuck. So rather than going directly to um, you know, some of the sources that you might have used before um, in order to figure those things out, who will remain unnamed, some of which are greenhouse customers, instead, you might go to uh, an, you know, also a greenhouse customer, OpenAI's uh, you know, <laughs> Chat GPT um, and uh, and pair with it to, to answer certain questions. So that's the set of things that you can do, especially like when you look at Copilot and stuff like that, that specifically helps the the process of coding. Uh, an important point is, of course, most developers don't actually spend most of the time banging on the keyboard. Uh, do you feel that there are other ways that you can speed up the process of engineering shipping features that could potentially leverage large language models above and beyond simply generating code for APIs that may or may not exist? 
That's a, that's a great question. Uh, it's also great as a thought partner for rubber ducking. Um, so, you know, you have some idea about how you might solve a problem. You can ask it to, um, you know, try to help you think through it, um, think through edge cases that you might not have considered. Um, you know, it, it can provide, uh, you know, a lot of support that you might have traditionally relied on a pair programmer, um, you know, to do. I found it's actually a pleasure to pair with, and there's also no shame in asking an AI questions. Um, so, you know, if you might feel silly about, you know, uh, you know asking a question, um, you never have to feel that way with 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 uh, one of these tools. Um, I'd also say that it's pretty much the best tutor I've ever had. Um, so, you know, as I was coming up to speed, and I, I think, you know, this is a perpetual thing, not a thing I have done, but as I'm coming up to speed with, you know, more and more um, around large language models and how they work, um, I started asking it to tutor me. And so I would say, you know, I'm learning about large language models. Could you please give me a quiz to help me understand uh, how much I know and where some of my gaps are? And so it immediately, you know, in, in three seconds generated 10 really deep questions. And I was like, oh, wow, I can't answer all these 10 questions at once. And I was saying, you know, can you prompt me one at a time? So it started prompting me and I would you know, answer the question and be like, OK, I got that one right. Ask me another question. Got the next one right. Ask me the next question and be like, oh, I got that totally wrong. I'm, so I misunderstood something like help me figure out what I misunderstood. And so then um, it would uh, you know, decompose that question into some of the components underneath it. And it would ask me three different sub questions. And it was like, oh, well, I, I, got, I know this part, I know this part, I didn't quite understand this part that well. And then I asked it to give me some instruction on like that one part that I really didn't understand that was kind of making the whole answer wrong. Um, it would uh, you know, teach me um, you know, some of the details. And then I asked that it validate that I understood just that sub pit sub bit, you know, and so um, I, uh, I got tested on that. Once I knew it, I zoomed back out and I was back in the broader quiz and able to work my way through. So instead of just getting it wrong, like you might normally and knowing I've got to go study this instead in the moment when I found out that I wasn't doing it the right way or didn't have the right conceptual understanding, I was able to fill that hole in my mind and, and move straight on to, to the next topic. And so you can really leverage it to get better at almost anything. And as I got to the end of the thing, it was like, I'm also great at music theory and, you know, geopolitics. And it was like, oh my God, I could learn. <laughs> so basically a personalized tutor for mastery-based learning, not bad for an autocomplete. <laughs> no. <laughs> and the price is right, 20 bucks a month. Right. I mean, it's like, it's the emergent behaviors that I think it, uh, are what uh, people like are stumbling and it's really getting their heads around that. So uh, talking about emergent behaviors, you know, to pull, obviously there's this huge kind of uncertainty over, you know, whether uh, you speak to some people, it won't even be source code, just tell ChatGPT to solve the problem, it'll go do it. You don't even need to generate code right through to the, well, you know, it's like moving from a text editor to uh, IntelliJ or something like that back in the day. Um, I, I think that the cone is narrowing a little bit. It's clearly not just the, the move to IntelliJ. What are some of the things you would also suggest that an engineering leader should start to invest in in the medium term to ensure that they are, they and their org are both ready for the changes that this could bring. Sure. Um, and, and I will just provide the quick note for anyone who hasn't run into this blog post first or, or any of the blog posts around this. Um, if you ask it to uh, use you know, a step by step uh, or chain of thought reasoning, um, that gives you totally different results um, you know, than, than you might get if you just asked it a question directly. Um, you, yeah, so I, I would say those are two interesting prompts to, uh, to explore in terms of medium or long term. Um, I'll first answer medium because I think long term is is uh, is actually you know what let's let's start with long term. No one has any idea. 
I, I think, you know, the, the same thing that, um, you know, a, a lot of other folks think, I you know, believe it or not, uh, agree with Sam Altman's general take, like, it's going to be really disruptive. Things are going to be really, really different in some way or another. Now, he's kind of like a techno utopian um, who believes, uh, you know, that it is more likely that we end up with, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, you know, universal basic income and, you know, automation solves everything. Um, and if you go back to like the early 1900s in academia, it's an interesting, uh, you know, um, implementation of, of some of this thinking. Uh, there were like leisure studies departments coming out because there was this idea that like, well, we'll automate enough that we'll be working 15 hours a week and everyone will be sort of infinitely prosperous um, and scary scarcity is going to go away. Um, so there are some people who believe that. I would say possible. I don't know any better than him. That's That, that seems possible. Um, but uh, then there's others on the other end of the spectrum, like, you know, Eliezer Yudkowsky, um, who believe literally the AIs are going to you know, destroy uh, destroy the world and is an absolute inevitability. So long term, I have no idea. And uh, you probably shouldn't be overly confident in your opinion on, on one side or the other. Um, all outcomes are, are entirely possible. We can't predict the far future. So I would just say that about the long, uh, long range and you get more information as you get closer to it. Uh, in, in the medium term, there uh, are some things. I'm oh, going to jump ahead. in and qualify for medium term about how, how would you define medium term in your mind? Sure. I, I would say like two to five years. Okay. I mean, yeah. I'm just picking some arbitrary That's numbers. <laughs> I, I just want to, because, you know, some of you medium term is, well, you know, in, in two weeks, I think we'll see this. So two yeah. to five years sounds good. So, so some things are, uh, let's take GPT-4's current capabilities. Let's say that OpenAI, through feats of engineering and additional GPUs and all types of things, is just able to make that service broadly available for all of the use cases the world would like to use it for. That might be the two-year time horizon. Imagine all of the things that you might be able to do more efficiently or better if that technology became truly pervasive and remained really low cost for all those types of operations. I think that's one of the lenses that you should take. There are, of course, lots of other, I don't want to just center everything on, you know, uh, open AI stuff. There's lots of other, um, you know, interesting things happening in machine learning, but let's just stay focused on the large language models um, for a minute. I think that's a good sort of two-year lens. I can actually use this everywhere I need to use it. Um, longer range, I think uh, you can imagine that the models get more performant. They get faster. They have longer context windows. They get more emergent behaviors. They can do bigger, harder things. They can decompose problems better. Um, you may end up in worlds where there's, uh, you know, multiple agents interacting with each other, um, you know, that, that have different training sets and different, uh, you know, different approaches, different types of models. Um, you have ensembles that, you know, collaborate. You have, uh, you know, these agents, um, or, or sorry, these, these LLMs interacting with agents and, and those agents can go out and make API calls, make effects happen in the real world. Um, so all of those things, I think, are inevitable. Um, and and, and you know, technologically, those are um, bits of progress that are going to happen. Things will become more stable. Uh, new technologies will be produced. And so um, when you think about your business, you have to think, like, is this an existential threat to my business, depending on what the business is? If your business is dog food, like, probably not. I, you know, I think putting... Yeah, to to uh, you know borrow um, borrow from a uh, uh, you know, guy Kawasaki like putting cows in cans is probably you know not um, something that is going to uh, be threatened directly by AI. 
Um, but there's probably other things that that would be a, a bigger existential threat. And then there's, you know, what do I need to do in order to be able to adapt my business um, in order to uh, survive and thrive in this world where I have, uh, you know, every competitor of mine has access to the same sort of technological baseline and can exploit it um, in the market in order to more efficiently deliver value. Does that mean that prices are going to go down and they're going to have smaller teams? Does it mean that they're going to deliver more services of more types? Um, those are questions that I think are relative to the business that you're in, um, and uh, you know it's it's probably um, you know you you are the one who is best suited uh, along with the rest of your executive team to map out that strategy. Makes sense, Mike. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and experience. My pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Geeks Who Lead, go to geekswholead.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter to get regular access to other great interviews and then see whether you might qualify to join one of our exclusive free executive communities.